We're in Ephesians 5, and uh, it's, it's my practice uh, to, to either have somebody else read Scripture or I'll read Scripture. I got uh, into this text. I was originally going to go down to verse 21, and this passage covers uh, sex, money, and alcohol. And I got to the last section about alcohol, and I was like, it's just, it's just too much. And so we, uh, I'm going to trim it down, and therefore we're going to just go to verse 14, even though what's uh, printed or scanned is up through verse 21. But we're going to stop at verse 14. So this is uh, God's word to you today. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. It is our practice to spend some moments in silence before I preach. And what we're doing in that in that space is that we're asking for God to show show up. And what happens in the preaching of the word is that the Holy Spirit, the illuminator of Jesus Christ, uh, comes in and he makes these words come alive to our hearts. And so that's what we're asking God to do, that God would shine uh, the the Holy Spirit onto the text so that we may see Christ more beautiful. So let's pray. Pray for that right now. Father, we thank you for even the the the, the faculties, the, the bodies, the brains to even be alive. And we uh, rest in your sustaining care over us. And Lord, you teach us all sorts of things. You teach us how to live. You teach us what to joke about, what not to joke about, what to look at, what not to look at, what to move towards and what to move away from. And so your guidance, it really is clear. Uh, you teach us through the word what to discern and what's pleasing to you. And Lord, you have made our souls uh, so, so empty without you. And in this passage, you teach us what it means to, to walk in your steps, to imitate you uh, as, a, as a young child would look up to his father or her father and, and uh, seek to be close and to be near. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Uh, help us to, like we sang earlier in the service, uh, re- restore us again 
uh, God, you are our salvation. Um, would you do that by the Holy Spirit? In Christ's name, amen. So uh, I have a young son. His name is Lazarus. He's almost five years old. He's in preschool. And he's came home the other day and said that he had learned Genesis 1, verse 1. And so we're like, okay, well, let's hear it, buddy. And he said, uh, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And uh, I knew at that moment I had failed at being a a father. Um, But the the passage that we just read from, they're hard for us to understand because basically the church has become so intertwined with secular and American culture that it's hard to, to separate the two. And I always want you to remember, this is part of why I open up the scriptures and we walk through a passage each, each Sunday. That scripture is forever and always timeless and speaks to each age in any time with specificity. Uh, in, in the Ephesian culture, they had what we would call a, a pagan culture where they worshiped this goddess named Artemis. And she was the goddess of of war and fertility. And they had this really great temple for her. Uh, It was part of part of the ancient world. It's called one of the seven wonders of the world. And so this city in Ephesus was actually a very attractive city to live in and and to work in. And if you think about uh, our culture in the West, you know, we think in so many ways that we're evolved in how we think about Sex, drugs, and money, um, which is what Paul is addressing in this passage. But we're actually very similar to this first century pagan culture. And the reason why is because sin, at its core, devolves human beings into monotony and boredom. It is the, it is the Christian teaching of the resurrection that moves human beings towards being generative and creative. It moves us towards being beautiful and resilient. And there was a reason why hundreds and thousands of people in the first three centuries became Christians in the midst of a pagan culture like this. And it was because of passages like this, where Paul was saying, this is actually a better way to think about your sexuality. This is actually a better way to think about substances. This is a better way to think about money. And very simply put, what was so attractive to people in those early centuries was that Christianity was simply a better offer than anything else in the world. Paul is giving the church a new way to think about sexual and material ethics, basically. And Paul was giving uh, the church this this new form of of living that, that was based upon sacrificial love and and self-giving. Um, and also it was rooted in this teaching on the resurrection that God was going to resurrect all the good things that we experience on earth. And so the good things that we experience on earth, like sex, like money, like alcohol, we tend to uh, get kind of sidetracked as human beings and, and want to worship them, make them into idols. But, but Paul says, no, you, when you experience those things, they're pointing to God and you are to give thanks to God when you experience them. That's the proper use of the best gifts in this world to respond in thanksgiving. 
Paul always comes back to this in all of his letters. He, and he says, if you're in Christ, you should be the most thankful human beings on the planet. And uh, that's what we're going to look at today. Paul gives us two categories on how to uh, walk that out in this world. You know, that's a very Hebrew way of saying uh, what it's like to, to live with God. You walked, you walked with God, obeying his commands. Um, and he, he teaches the Ephesians how to live a reordered life um, surrounding what I would call the resurrection, but, but also just gospel gratefulness with your existence. And so we're going to look at how to do that with uh, these two points. Sexual and material sanity and the fear and beauty of exposure. So, so point one, sexual and material sanity. How do we walk in love as a fragrant sacrifice and offering to God? Verse three, look at verse three. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity. And I want you to look up. Uh, I want to do a little bit of translation work right here. Impurity in the Bible doesn't just mean like being sexually prudish. Uh, purity in the Old Testament, you know, Paul was a Jew. Purity in the Old Testament meant that you were uh, heading towards God's presence, which is where life was. It more resembled wholeness of what it meant for human flourishing, which was life with God. So when, it, when Paul says purity, it, it doesn't, it's not just talking about sexuality. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness, wanting things that you don't have, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So Steve Garber, uh, professor, says that you'll know what a modern person believes about God or the gods today if they let some authoritative voice tell them what to do with their sexuality Uh, The same could be said of our money. If you want to imitate God, Paul says, we have to talk about sex and money. Uh, It's the two things that people place a lot of value on, despite what culture you're in. And this is going to cause every type of person to get a little bit uncomfortable. Both young and old, uh, if you lean right or left... Uh, You should expect when you come into contact with an authoritative voice to for it to sound difficult at times. That means that you're letting it control you and you're not trying to conform it to, to how you want to live and how you want to think. It means that it's actually being authoritative in your life. And so we should expect to hear things that are hard to hear that you're like, ah, I don't I don't necessarily want to hear that. Um. I give you a, a bunch of illustrations today, but I had a dear friend once. I knocked, I knocked on his door. He, he was in another room and he's like, just come on in. And as I was coming in, uh, I saw that uh, just his tax papers were on the table. And when he saw me come in, uh, he, he rushed and like covered up his tax papers, his IRS papers, like as fast as he could. And uh, I was thrown out by that because this is a friend that we, we were really tight. Like we vacationed several times together. And when he did that, I was like, dude, I'm like, I don't care what you make or what you don't like. I'm not going to judge you. Uh, I love you. And that is the um, in some sense. And I know that we got to be careful how we talk about money. I get that. But the Christian way of life is to not be secretive about what you have. It's to live life with an open hand, because if we don't, what that points to 
in the end is that we're really clinging to material that makes us materialists. It's, it's not a belief in the resurrection. That it's all going to get restored and renewed one day. And we got to be really careful about this today because we, we in some ways are a culture built on coveting. Desiring things that, that we don't have. And most people in the U.S. that have jobs, you know, this is, our, this is the American way. We say, look, I've worked hard. I have, I have been disciplined. I, I have earned what I've gotten. And you just can't expect me to be extremely generous and open-handed with my stuff, with my material stuff. Now, um, granted, there, there has to be wisdom with how you handle money for sure. But we need to hear what Paul is saying. If you want to walk with God, if you want to imitate God as his child, you have to be a generous person because it's all a gift. None of it belongs to you. It was all gifted to you by God. The only reason you have things is to give them away. That's true freedom. That's the posture of what Paul is saying, that God has given me everything I need. So I'm not going to always be looking for more, nor am I going to hoard what I have. Look, I have uh, I have had the great privilege because of the church to have been around all sorts of people when it comes to wealth. Both rich and poor. A lot of people go after rich people at this point in Scripture, but I have seen poor people be as, as controlled by money as rich people. It, de- it doesn't matter how much you have. It's your approach to what God's given you. If you approach the world from a position of poverty and lack, you're going to always have to be reminding yourself, look, uh, God's going to take care of me, and I don't have to be afraid of not having enough. That's not how I'm called to live in this world. If you are a person that comes from means and you generally get what you want uh, and you can buy most things that you want, you're going to constantly have to remind yourself, I don't have to have new clothes. I don't have to have the latest thing. I, I don't have to go to every game to make me feel alive and significant. But Paul says the proper response to things that you have in your life is to give thanks. To be open with your money. And there's actually a, a, a place in Scripture where God says, see, test me. If you, give, your, give your stuff away to the poor and see if I don't fill your hand back up with way more than you need. Test. Don't covet. He also says that if we're going to talk about imitating God, we have to talk about our view of sex. Now, many scholars have said... Probably what Paul means when that word sexual immorality is used, it's the Greek word pornea, which you can hear where we get the word porn from in in our English language. But many scholars look at look at the whole of the New Testament when that when that word is used. And they say probably what the New Testament writers are meaning here was any sexual activity outside of the covenant and bond of marriage. Um. It doesn't that that doesn't mean that we aren't sexual creatures. It's saying any sexual activity outside of its sacred use Uh, in mere Christianity in the 1940s. C.S. Lewis said, you know, the, the Bible's teaching on sex is so very difficult because it's so restrictive and unpopular. Now, he said that back in the 40s in England. 
And I, I want to be clear about something right up front. The reason why we don't like what the Bible teaches about human sexuality is not because the, the Bible is like prudish about sex. But the reason why we don't like it is because we have degraded sex so horribly in our culture that we've lost its beauty. And the way that the scriptures talk about sex is so beautiful, it's like we can't even grasp it anymore. Um, I kind of equate it with like, you know, an extremely potent bottle of perfume is sweet in the correct dosage. But if you were to break that bottle and pour it on your carpet, it loses its design and becomes in some sense less less sweet. And I, I believe what's going to happen, like I, you guys know this, like I'm no prophet, but like <laughs> I think in 60 years, we're going to look back at our culture and how we've used sex and how overly sexualized we are. I think we're going to look back at our culture in the ways that we look back at movies that were made in the 30s and 40s and think, didn't they know like cigarette smoke was causing cancer back then? Like, why is everybody smoking? You know, it's, it's not it's not just religious people who are, who are talking about how terrible our overly sexualized culture is. It's secular people now, too, that it's literally rewiring our brains. The infiltration of porn. And I don't and I don't just mean, you know, the stuff that you find on the Internet, but it, it's it's everywhere. And how and how we think even in the church and uh, young folks. And when I, when I say young folks, I'm talking about people under the age of 21. You are going to have to show us the way forward. Um, you are not the problem. Technology is not the problem. It's human hearts getting whatever they want for generations. That's the problem. That we have created uh, in, our, in our worst moments, people in our 30s and 40s, we've created this dilemma for you. Uh, and you're, it's like as one church planning coach says, we're going to have to cross the bridge as we build it in the future. And young people, you can do it. You have the hope of the resurrection. You're going to be able to show us how the gospel interplays with technology, and you're going to teach us what it means to have a proper view of human sexuality again through the hope of the gospel, through, through Jesus. Scripture forces us to admit that sex is a big deal. And one of the main things that sexual immorality teaches us about is the wrath of God. That's what the text says. And that's a good thing. Because sexual immorality more than any other sin. It's that type of sin that you know when you're doing it. You, you like it, it's way it's in some sense, covetousness and greed are way more dangerous sins because people don't know when they're greedy. People don't know when they're covetous. Um, but, you know, when you're being sexually immoral, I know our, our like secular culture says all the time, we don't need to think about sin. All we need to do is look inside and, and we'll be fine. That's that's not true. You need a voice on the outside telling you that you're doing okay. And sexual immorality, God can use it and will use it and has used it throughout the centuries to teach you your desperate need of him. As one pastor says, you know, no one during the act of adultery ever looked at the person they were committing adultery with and said, wait, wait a second, you're not my spouse. 
You know, they, they know. Other sins aren't like that. And I believe it's safe to say that we have all, every single one of us in this room, we have all been harmed by sexual morality. And there's, this, there's so much shame here. And so we have to be very, very careful. And Christian communities are some of the, where, where some of the worst atrocities occur. If anything in the past 10 years has taught us, it's taught us that. That the places where, where we were to go in this world to be the safest and unharmed by sexual perversion are some of the worst spots in the world to go to. And Christians are to be about the exposure of that darkness in-house first. Paul, so how do, we, how do we start with that? Well, Paul, in verses 3 through 5, he said, you know, sexual perversion in the Christian life should be like oil and water. And when it's not, it's just terrible. And he's, he'll go on to say in this passage that you know, the covenant of marriage is one of the things strong enough to house the sin and the shame that we all carry into this world. But Paul was single. You don't have to be married to, to deal with this um, because marriage is just a small picture of, of the gospel where when a, when a person gets married to another person, it's, it's a picture of Jesus Christ in the church. And the same, it's the same with sex. Like sex has an intended goal in mind. And it's not just to give you joy and pleasure, but it's to point you to the maker of human sexuality. And, and you are to think, if this is so good, I wonder what it's going to be like to be in the presence of the one who created sex and to give him thanks. That's its design. That's its goal. Um, and so, you know, you may, be, you may be at a place where you're like, you're looking at the world and you're thinking it's... <laughs> It feels hopeless. Are you looking at your own heart and you're like, I don't even know where to begin? Um, as, as one of my friends at the gym told me this past week, he's got teenagers in high school. He, he said, you know, technology for teenagers is like a race to the bottom today. And I just want to be like, well, it's the same for adults, too. Um, so so how, do, how do we start? How do, how do Christians start? I'm talking to Christians right now. Um, first... Christians aren't allowed to give up. Like we can't just recede from society and just just say, you know what? It's, it's hopeless. We, we believe in the resurrection. And that there is a bright future for the entire cosmos. And therefore, you, to are, you, you are to be engaged in the world and to figure it out with the God, discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Look at what Paul says in verse four. He says, human intimacy is such a good thing that we are to even be careful with how we talk about sex. You, you ever notice how hard it is to joke about something that's like super amazing? You know, sometimes we can we can joke to divert shame that we feel. But when something is downright enjoyable, you do laugh, but it's not out of humor. It's out of, again, gratefulness. Uh, the proper response to sex is, is thankfulness. Gratefulness is the medicine for sexual immorality. So let me tell you how this plays itself out. Let, the cure for, for sexual immorality is not like trying really hard to stay away from porn 
are trying really hard to, to not commit adultery, but it's a reorientation of the way that you think about your existence in that everything that you have is a gift. And what adultery is saying, what pornographic addiction is saying is that what I have in my life is not enough. And therefore, I need to take matters into my own hands because God's not given me what I need. That's why it's associated with covetousness, idolatry. That it's saying to God, you are not good enough for me right now. And what you've given me is not good enough. So I need this thing. I need this person. And the reorientation of life as a Christian is that you say, actually, I have more than enough. Because when I look at Jesus, God in the flesh coming into the world for me, I have too much. I want to give I want to give my stuff away, which is the heart of sex. That's true sexiness. When you say I'm moving towards another person sacrificially to give my body away for the pleasure and joy of another. It's not to take. It's a picture of the gospel. That's why uh, sexual immorality at its core is, is, is saying back to God, you don't know me. I know me better than you know me. And what Paul is saying, no. The Bible knows you better than you know you. And so listen. That's true freedom. To live a life of gratefulness. You know, Stephen Tyler, uh, lead singer of Aerosmith, was interviewed by Oprah once, and uh, he said with sadness, how terrible a life of sexual promiscuity actually is. And he said, you know, in the end, to have sex with one person a thousand times is far more meaningful and joyful than having sex with a thousand different people. And you could see that he said it with experience, with painful experience in his face. Now, here's the question. Um, God designed you as a sexual being, whether you've been intimate with somebody or not. Um, And you should listen to God's word precisely because you want to get the most out of intimacy with others. That's what Paul is saying. That's the sexual ethic that he's giving and as Tim Keller would say, you need to be sting- this, this passage teaches us to be stingy with our sexuality and promiscuous with our money. Now, I could give a thousand points of application here before we uh, move on to the next section of our passage. But if you're struggling, if you're struggling with pornographic addiction right now, you need to talk to somebody. And you need to go to a recovery group, maybe. Some of us in here may need to even move out of state and treat it like a substance abuse addiction because that's what it's doing to your brain. And it's serious. Um, If you're dating someone and you can't keep your hands off of that person, you need to tell a friend that will ask you about your private life regularly for for the sake of imitating God in this world. Um, It... I I want to be very careful here. I am not talking to parents right now. Um, And parents, don't take what I'm going to say and force your children to obey when they're not willing or wanting to do this. 
it would defeat the purpose. But I'm talking to those underneath the age of 21 right now. Um, If you're in middle school or high school or college, and you know, you know that you're spending too much time on your phone. You know that you care way too much about comparing yourself to others and how many likes you're getting, or maybe you have secret relationships online and no one has to tell you, like, you know it's bad for you. Um, What if you get rid of your phone? Of your own will? What if you got off of technology, at least for, for a time? And maybe, maybe you say, well, my teachers, that's how they get schoolwork to me. You, you tell your teacher, I need a break for my mental health. They'll give you a break. It's okay to say, I, I don't have the maturity, the wisdom to know how to handle a, a supercomputer in my pocket. It's okay to say that. And, and just to say, I need some space. <laughs> To, to figure out what it means to be a human being right now. Parents don't even ask what they thought about it on the way home. Let them have some agency. Now to all of us, this is to everybody, young and old. If we want to inherit the kingdom of God, which is what you want and which is what I want. Uh, let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can do whatever we want to with our money or our sexuality. That's not the Christian way. One of the most sad things I ever heard was a dear friend told me that his, his best friend lost his virginity. And he asked him, he said, well, what, what was it like? And he said, it was kind of boring. It wasn't anything special. And I just want the sadness of a statement like that to hit us and say, that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And it doesn't have to be. We can change that with the help of the gospel. Um, That the God who can raise the dead can rewire brains. And he can rewire bodies. But that only comes through exposing the darkest parts of our hearts and the darkest parts of our culture and, and re- revealing sin for what it actually is. It's a mirage. It's a sham. It looks fun at first, but in the end, it, it's sad, just like Stephen Tyler said. And so that's, that's our next point, the fear and beauty of exposure. Look at verses 7 through 14. It says, therefore, don't become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Bach, the uh, Baroque musician, but he's got a great uh, tune called Sleepers Awake from that text. 
uh, what this passage teaches us is that there's nothing more painful than being exposed and unloved in that exposure. But there's also nothing more pleasurable than being exposed and being unconditionally loved in that exposure. That's what Jesus is about. To expose what's going on underneath the surface and to draw you out. You are not to be partners with those who live in the secret dark places, in the recesses of your heart in this culture. Uh, Christians are to be those who, who expose their own sins in appropriate ways and appropriate contexts by, by talking about what's going on underneath the surface of their lives. If you watch how Jesus interacts with people who have been harmed sexually, it is amazing how tactful, how careful, how bold he is, and he draws people out, cause them to be beautiful in the world through the exposure of what's going on in their lives. Um, I have a friend who used to dress in drag. And he said his alternate uh, persona was named Barbara. And he said that during this time, after Barbara Streisand, by the way, he said that during this time he got involved in a Bible study with a ministry that many of us know about here in this room. Uh, and after a night of being Barbara one time, the next morning he went to a Bible study, but he forgot to wipe the mascara off of his eyes. And so he rushed, he rushed back to the bathroom and was wiping off his face. And he had this realization. He said, I, I can go from Barbara to Bible and still nobody knows who I am. It is very, very easy to hide in the church. Just as it, to hide from Jesus himself. And what, what begins to happen is that we, we initially fear that if I expose myself for who I really am, that people will not love me. But Christianity, what Paul is saying is that Christianity is about the exposure of sin, remaining with the sinner and seeing that person as a saint in the heart of the sin and saying that's not who you are. You're not Barbara or this, you know, christian Bible person. You're in Christ. You mimic Christ in this world in the exposure of what's going on. Jesus comes and says, I see all of you. And he's not afraid. He likes it all. He likes how he made your body look. And he says, I'm moving towards you constantly. That's what it means to, to live in light of the resurrection. And that's what Paul pronounces in the uh, last verse here. He says, awake, O sleeper, and, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be exposed. You have to let if you're a Christian, you have to let people in. Not not just for them, but so that you can know the experience of what it's like to be loved in the midst of exposure. That's way, way harder than living a condemned life. Than thinking that you're just a piece of garbage. You're not. 
The thing we fear is that when folks see us, that they'll be repelled. But that's not true. If you let yourself be exposed and you have the security of the love of Christ, people are irresistibly drawn to you because they know that that's how they are to walk in this world, too. That they were made to mimic their heavenly father. And that's what's pleasing to God. That's verse one, that when you do that, you're like a, a pleasing aroma to God. A sacrificial offering. Um, I'm, I'm going to close here with this more normal illustration. <laughs> uh, I was having lunch one summer with two older, older men that I very much look up to still and, and want to emulate. And we were driving to lunch. And somehow the, the topic of the Greek system, you know, fraternity system came up. And I was like, hey, uh, the, to the guy in the shotgun seat, I was like, were you in a frat? And he turned around and he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, Matt, I'm not in a, I wasn't in a frat because I'm a very scared and insecure man. And he's very, like, successful and sharp and somebody who I wanted to be, <laughs> still do. And what do you think that made me do with him? Was I like, oh man, this dude's lame. Uh, it drew me closer to him. Because he was secure enough in Christ to let me know how he, how he operates in his fear. He exposed me. I don't know if you guys have ever had that experience, but ju- just by the way that somebody else is walking with God, it exposes how you're hiding from yourself in the world. And here's what Paul is teaching us. Look, the path away from material and sexual misuse is not trying really hard. It's to be grateful for the things that you currently have and the ways in which the gospel has come into your life. That at at the core, what your heart needs most of all is for you at your lowest to to experience somebody's gaze, look over you and say, I am pleased. And nothing can change that ever. If you've ever been uh, completely exposed and simultaneously loved in that moment, that is the experience of the gospel. Um, And it makes you grateful. It makes you resilient. It makes you a creative, generative person not devolving into monotony and boredom. And the reason why is because that's the type of love that makes you rise from the dead is what this passage teaches. That's a part of the new creation. It's your future self coming to life. His steadfast love is better than life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... uh, not just the pathway to become more sane with our stuff and with our sex, but uh, we thank you most of all that in the exposure of what's going on into the surface of our lives, um, that you don't look away and that you aren't harsh and that you are, are so gentle with us that th- those who, who have even been hurt so much by a sexual misconduct that you restore to health And you redeem, Lord, you redeem our story so that it becomes powerful in the world. It becomes powerful for other people um, because it attests to the fact that there's hope. 
And so as we think about uh, what that means for, for our future, I do pray that you would be with the next generation. Lord, they have not been given uh, from, from us or from our parents who are older, who grew up in the 60s and 70s. Lord, they've not been given uh, a great path, but you're with them and you're with us. And we are never called to be cynical and to be hopeless. And so help us, Lord. We, uh, we have been humbled by...